Good morning. Welcome to Rising. Let's get right into it. Big show today. I'm joined by my Monday co-host, Bacha Angar Sargan. Hello, Bacha. Hello, Robbie. Good morning. All right. Why don't you tell the audience what we're talking about? Well, Robbie, the Dow Jones is down more than 150 points this morning amidst fears of financial contagion after the 16th largest bank in the United States collapsed on Friday. U.S. regulators scrambled to seize assets from tech lender Silicon Valley Bank after the bank was overcome by withdrawals from panicked customers. SVB's collapse is the largest U.S. bank crash since 2009 and the second largest crash in the country's history. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation now controls some $175 million in SVB customer deposits, according to The New York Times. Now, just this morning, President Biden assured Americans that their banks are safe and that no taxpayer funds would be used to bail out Silicon Valley bank depositors and investors. Let's watch. Hey, thanks for the quick action of my administration over the past few days. Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. No losses will be, and I'm on, this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Instead, the money will come from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. Because of the actions of that, because of the actions that our regulators have already taken, every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. Second, the management of these banks will be fired. If the bank is taken over by FDIC, the people running the bank should not work there anymore. Third, investors in the banks will not be protected. They knowingly took a risk, and when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. Biden also indicated that he'd seek more regulations in light of the collapse, but declined to say what those might be. As noted by The New York Times' Deborah Solomon, a 2018 bill that relaxed post-financial crisis regulations on mid-sized banks passed with bipartisan support. Joining us now to weigh in is Research Director at the American Economic Liberties Project and author of Goliath, Matt Stoller. Matt, welcome back to Rising. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really great to have you. You're so much of an expert on this subject. So, you know, we're hearing people like Biden, like Janet Yellen say that this is not actually a bailout. Is that true? No. <laughs> so explain <laughs> to us your thinkings on what's going on here. Happy financial crisis again or something. No, uh, <laughs> this is not really a crisis. Um, uh, what? Yeah, so the 2008 bailouts were about using public money and importantly public guarantees which are worth a lot of money but don't go on the books to guarantee the not just uh insured depositors which is not a bailout they pay insurance but uninsured depositors that's of people who have more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in their in the bank account um but also bondholders and stockholders and executives Right, that's what happened in 2008. This time, it's a much smaller bank. Well, actually, series of banks. It's Silicon Valley Bank. It's also another. It's a hundred billion dollar bank called Signature Bank, which dealt mainly with crypto. Um, the equity holders and the bond holders are going to get wiped out. But and then, of course, if you have less than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in their bank, your your deposits are safe because you pay for insurance. But what's the bailout here is that people who have more than $250,000 in the bank, which is to say that their deposits are uninsured, the government is coming in and guaranteed that they can get their in uninsured deposits back. And that's where there's a bailout. 
uh, to give you a sense, a Silicon Valley Bank was a $200 billion plus bank and 95 to 97% of their depositors were uninsured, which is to say mm -hmm. nearly all of the money that they had as deposits were coming from people with more than $250,000 uh, or firms with more than $250,000 in there. That was true with Signature Bank as well in New York. So um, I, I I completely agree with you. Everything you've been tweeting on this, you know, opposing this as another bailout. But what? So what I want to do is pose to you what have seemed to me like um, the arguments that I'm seeing coming up against that position, supporting the Biden administration, saying that this is not a bailout. So the first is, you know, that this is not coming from taxpayers; that it's coming from the Federal Deposit Insurance Fund. I wonder, first of all, if you could tell us what that is. Explain to us what that is, and then explain to us why Biden is insisting that that is not taxpayer funded, but why you think that it actually is? Well, first of all, Biden got it wrong because the, the FDIC is doing some work here, but the Federal Reserve itself is also set up a facility for banks to borrow at below market rates, which is a subsidy, right? I mean, we pretend like the Federal Reserve balance sheet isn't taxpayer money. It is. That's our that's our institution. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he just he didn't give the full suite of details. And I'm not saying that the that the bailout was necessarily a bad idea. I didn't support it, but uh, I was just explaining the the details. So what the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, when you is is an insurance company, it's a government owned insurance company that handles uh, bank accounts. So you know when you go to your bank, you see FDIC insured on the on the window. When you get materials for your bank account, it says FDIC insured. It means that your your uh, bank account up to $250,000 is uh, guaranteed by the government. And you pay through your bank a small fee to the FDIC to make sure that they have a big fund that they can use to deal with banks that go under and make sure that depositors who have less than $250,000 in their bank account are made whole. And this is a way of preventing bank runs for normal people. And uh, it was established in the Great Depression. It's been phenomenally successful. And pretty much everybody who's watching this show doesn't need to worry about their bank account and didn't need to worry about it before this bailout either, because it's just less than if you have less than $250,000 in your bank account, you're fine. So that's what the FDIC is. And what was announced is that the FDIC has a special authority um, where if they determine, and there are a bunch of other fancy regulators all determine that the loss of a bank uh, poses a special risk to the whole financial system, that they can come in and they can guarantee anything they want. So not just insured bank deposits, but uninsured bank deposits or uh, bonds or um, commercial paper, whatever, all the funky financial instruments, the FDIC can just hand out whatever they want if they get this uh, what's called a systemic risk exemption because language in finance is annoying. Um, but it means they can do whatever they want. And they indeed voted for that um, yesterday and said that the FDIC is going to backstop any of the uninsured deposits for these banks. Uh, and then at the same time, the Federal Reserve said to the rest of the banking system, that if they want access to below market lending, that they can get it from the Federal Reserve. So this was like a multi-pronged approach. And the reason that they did it is because they, um, regulators feared, this was, this was basically panic. 
panicked by the regulators. The, the Silicon Valley guys who bank at, at Silicon Valley Bank, and there are a variety of reasons why they left, uh, why they had lots of uninsured deposits in there, and none of them are innocent reasons. Um, they said, if you don't bail us out, um, then the whole banking system is going to collapse. And the regulators believed that. And so they said, we have to backstop not just Silicon Valley Bank's uninsured deposits, but we have to effectively backstop the entire banking system. So what this was, was really the nationalization of the entire banking system. Um, kind of like we didn't necessarily notice it because all of our bank accounts are basically guaranteed by the FDIC. But now uh, we just handed over the credit card of full faith and credit of the United States to every banker in the United States, and they can now gamble with our, effectively our credit. Yeah, and, and this sounds, this is my concern, is this is a, a major moral hazard. You know, look, if you want to have a wild night at the casino, that's fine, but if you lose, you pay. And it sounds like, you know, people that sought out a, a specific bank for specific reasons and then made deposits that were not insured, well, okay then, but then you don't get the benefit of insurance if you're not paying for it. That's the risk you take, and sometimes you lose and sometimes you win, and that's that's kind of how Silicon Valley works, right? They People make investment in these ideas and sometimes they pay off, sometimes they lose everything, et cetera. Now they're saying, now that they're gonna, they took the risk and they lost, but they're being made whole. Doesn't that just create tremendous incentive to engage in further risky behavior? Yeah, so so I, I agree with that. Um, I, I would say that a lot of the so that the argument here on behalf of people who who want th this bailout is that a lot of the people who were banking who have more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in their account are are small businesses, right? You have the day before payroll, you put a bunch of money in there so you can pay everyone, and so they get caught in the kind of the undertow here. And it's like if you're building an app or some biotechnology, whatever, like you're not thinking about your bank account, right? You're just sort of like, I need a bank account. I need to handle payroll. I need to pay people and take in money, whatever. Everybody banks at Silicon Valley Bank, so it's fine. Um, and then there are thousands of these businesses that are caught in the undertow. And so mm -hmm. the idea, part of the undertow idea here is we have to protect those businesses. That's the story they're telling. And there is some merit to that. There are innocent um, people who got caught in the undertow here. But the other part of the story that they're not telling is that the reason that a lot of these firms were putting large un uninsured deposits at Silicon Valley Bank is because Silicon Valley Bank would give the founders of those companies and the venture capitalists who fund them what's called white glove uh, service, which is to say they got below market cost loans, below market cost mortgages, essentially bribery for leaving other people's money in uninsured accounts at Silicon Valley Bank that Silicon Valley Bank could then use to gamble. And that's why this is so outrageous. And there is this deep entangling with the business of Silicon Valley, what I think are basically bribes paid to people who are in charge of other people's money, and then the use of that money to gamble. And I think that they should have uh, they should have lost. They should have lost that money. That is, first of all, the, the losses wouldn't have been that bad. They probably mm -hmm. would have. 80, 90, 95 cents on the dollar. It, this was not a big deal. And uh, the, the regulators panicked. And that, I mean, but but what we what we have here is a banking system that is incredibly corrupt and full of self-dealing. Now, a lot of firms really want just a simple place where they can put their money and just handle payroll. They just need a place for safekeeping. And what we should really just do, and it's really simple, um, isn't to put it at too big to fail banks. 
uh, or, or large regional banks. If you want something really safe, we should just have the government operate as a bank. It happens in lots of countries. We used to do it here. The post office used to be a bank. There's no reason not to give small businesses, municipalities, anybody who has who, who wants guaranteed, just safekeeping, public utility banking, put it at the Fed and they should have an account. Lots of big banks have accounts at the Fed. Why not You know anybody who wants it? It's, mm -hmm. it's a simple, easy solution, and that would take care of this whole problem. But of course, it would disintermediate the bankers, and they don't like that. But you know what? Like We've guaranteed all of their liabilities anyway. I mean, we've nationalized the system. So at this point, I don't really see a reason not to do that. Mm. Right, well, and just two more qu quick questions for you. Um, I, I, the other thing I've been noticing is they're not saying like if they had gambled and won, they would then take all of those profits and donate them to the public, right? It's only when they lose that they start talking about, right, uh, sort of nationalizing all this. I think that's a really important point. A, a couple more very quick questions for you. The first is the other thing I've, I've been seeing people saying is that, you know, these aren't just sort of, you know, rich millionaire big wigs with their money invested in um, SVB. There's a lot of small business owners. Plus, we should be thinking about all the people who are going to get sort of laid off as a result of this failing if the government doesn't step in. I'd love to hear what you would say to that. And then the second thing that I think you're really going to enjoy answering based on your book is the other argument I've heard is that if the government were to allow SVB to simply fail, what this would end up doing is causing a kind of monopolization effect in terms of um, the banking system in America, where people will only really trust the biggest banks and that will get an even further monopolization of banking. Um, I, you know, I would love for you to respond to those two things really quickly. Yeah, so so it's true that there are going to be some firms that are hit um, hit here, but but that's overstated. The Silicon Valley Bank was gambling, but they were gambling basically on on treasury treasury bonds and safe mortgage backed securities, which went down in value because interest rates went up. But it was good. These were these were good quality collateral. It's not like 2008 where they were putting money into crappy mortgages that weren't worth anything. This stuff is worth a lot. It's just that. It, it's worth slightly less, and since they own so much of it, they're insolvent. But like the uninsured depositors were going to get back almost probably everything. Maybe they were going to take a small haircut. So this was not that big a deal. Um, I also mentioned that there was a lot of self-dealing here. Like these were not innocent uninsured depositors. Like they were getting paid with below market lines of credit, white white glove service here personally, right? And and it wasn't their money in the bank. Uh, so this isn't like. And then Silicon Valley Bank also was co-investing in some of these startups through an affiliate. So like this is a deeply in entangled, like self-dealing corrupt institution. Certainly there would be innocent people that would be getting hit, but that happens all the time. It's, it's um, you know, that's what happens in a, in a market system. I think we should have a, a, a place for safekeeping and it should just be the Federal Reserve. But to your point, of, the second point of your, uh, is that we have these these two big to fail banks and I think there was a legitimate concern that people would just rush to put their money into firms that they knew were safe like JP Morgan or Bank of America which have an implicit government backstop and I think that's a fair concern and that's why I think we need you know we really should have uh, broken up those banks but we just need a place for explicit safekeeping and just have it instead of having it done at government backstop firms that pay their CEOs millions of dollars for gambling with our money why don't we just let them do it with a government bank that is just a utility, right? That's the simplest way to deal with this. And then shrink the size of those too big to fail banks so that they're not too big to fail anymore. So that is the easiest way to deal with this. But like fundamentally what this what this problem shows, I mean, we could talk about there was some deregulation in 2018, which made this worse. And that's true, like Trump 
and the Republicans are 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 no innocents here. I mean, nine days ago, the Republicans on the on the Senate Banking Committee were pushing for more bank deregulation by the Fed. Everyone except J.D. Vance. So Vance wasn't on that letter. But like, this is a bipartisan problem, and it really reflects the failure of Dodd Frank and of the follow-on Republican agenda to roll back Dodd Frank regulations, and it and it sort of unmasks the like lie that we tell about banking, which is that banking is private. Uh, is private, are private actors lending and borrowing from another, and, and it's just not. Banking is a public system. The government is backstopping it. It always has been, and we need to start treating it like a public, the public utility that it is, instead of letting people make millions of dollars off of what is effectively our full faith and credit. Mm. Matt Stoller, we could talk to you about this all day. I bet. Uh, thank you so much for lending us your expertise. Thanks a lot. Up next, we'll tell you what's on our radar. Stick around for that. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, I have more to say about last week's hearing on the Twitter files, which was conducted by the House Judiciary Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. Now that I've had a few days to process it, I'm even more astonished by the behavior of congressional Democrats toward independent journalists Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, who had the opportunity to present their findings, which comprise the Twitter files, to Congress. Now, the Twitter files show that multiple arms of the federal government, including the FBI, the CDC, the State Department, the White House, under both Presidents Donald Trump and Joe Biden, to be clear, pressured social media companies to restrict speech. Now, this is of grave concern to Republican lawmakers. It was Representative Jim Jordan who invited Taibbi and Schellenberger to attend the hearing. Since government action is at the core of the insidious push for censorship, an insidious push that has also affected Facebook, as my own reporting has shown, it is appropriate for Congress to probe and hopefully sharply limit the federal bureaucracy's ability to shape the rules of online discourse. Frustratingly, the Democrats who participated in the hearing on Thursday could not have cared less about the federal government's role in promoting social media censorship. Indeed, the Democratic representatives involved in the proceedings turned their fire on Taibbi and on Schellenberger, not bothering to hold back their disdain for the pair. Delegate Stacey Plaskett of the Virgin Islands got the ball rolling by referring to Taibbi and Schellenberger as, quote, so-called journalists. Let's watch. This isn't just a matter of what data was given to these so-called journalists before us now. There are many legitimate questions about where Musk got the financing to buy Twitter. Taibbi responded by pointing out that he has won multiple journalism awards, including the National Magazine Award. Then, Representative Sylvia Garcia, a Democrat from Texas, seized upon the idea that perhaps the pair, she actually referred to them as part of a threesome with journalist Barry Weiss, which prompted a lot of laughs, uh, had perhaps been paid to provide such testimony. Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz took this ball and ran with it, ludicrously suggesting that somehow Taibbi's reporting was suspect because he had grown his own Twitter and Substack followings because of it. She really seemed to think it was unethical for good journalism to reap financial rewards for the author. Watch this. Elon Musk spoon-fed Elon Musk spoon-fed you his cherry-picked information, which you must have suspected promotes a slanted viewpoint or at the very least generates another right-wing conspiracy theory. You violated your own standard and you appear to have benefited from it. Before the release of emails in, of the emails in August of last year, you had 661,000 Twitter followers. 
after the Twitter files, your followers doubled, and now it's three times what it was last August. I imagine your Substack readership, which is a subscription, increased significantly because of the work that you did for Elon Musk. But it wasn't just tone-deaf personal attacks. The Democrats also expressed a profound disinterest in social media censorship as a topic, bordering on furtive support for it. Representative Dan Goldman asserted that the Twitter files had not produced a single genuine example of government censoring lawful speech. Even with Twitter, you cannot find actual evidence of any direct government censorship of any lawful speech. And when I say lawful, I mean non-criminal speech, because plenty of give speech you is non-criminal. At that point, Jim Jordan cut in and provided just such an example, the White House flagging a tweet from Robert Kennedy Jr. about vaccines for deletion. Goldman troub troublingly suggested, without actually reading the tweet in question, that perhaps that wasn't lawful, the, the speech in question. Representative Colin Allred, another Texas Democrat, similarly implied that there might be justification for censorship in the name of preventing hate speech. Now, Twitter, Facebook, and other social media companies are, of course, free to implement policies designed to curb harassment and hateful conduct. The question is whether a vast and self-serving federal bureaucracy that intervenes incessantly to limit speech it disfavors has effectively violated the First Amendment. Now, Taibbi and Schellenberger clashed repeatedly with members of Congress over the nature of misinformation and disinformation. Representative Stephen Lynch thought he'd scored a hit when he prompted Schellenberger to concede that the release of Hillary Clinton's emails and the widespread distribution of them on social media was the result of a successful hacking operation. But as Taibbi swiftly pointed out, just because the information was illicitly or illegally obtained does not make it misinformation. The content of the emails was authentic. And this is the main problem. Too many Democrats, national security experts, and mainstream journalists have found themselves in the position of implicitly arguing that various tweets could be spreading disinformation and thus undermining American democracy, even if the speech contained therein is truthful. Indeed, the entire countering disinformation industry is operating off a largely false assumption that the Russian influence on social media corrupted the 2016 election and led to Trump's victory. It's just not true, though. Russian activity on Facebook in the 2016 election was so much weaker and more inconsequential than people have been led to believe. A study by New York, a study by New York University's Center for Social Media and Policy found no evidence of a meaningful relationship between exposure to the Russian foreign influence campaign and changes in attitudes, polarization, or voting behavior. Moreover, alleged Russian bots flagged by disinformation tracking groups frequently turn out to be not bots, but real people, Americans even. Yet the disinfo industry is awash in public funding. The State Department has backed a British nonprofit that discourages advertisers from working with risky U.S. news websites, including Reason, the magazine I help edit. This is the danger of the U.S. government's ham-fisted, constitutionally suspect effort to curb dis disfavored speech. It is disappointing that congressional Democrats are taking little interest in the weaponization of the federal government against American speech rights. On the contrary, they think the weapon needs sharpening. It was one of the most baffling hearings I've ever watched, Bacha. I was frankly disgusted by uh, how the Democrats treated uh, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, just like on a kind of personal respect level. Uh, and, then, and then they and they totally misread the situation. They didn't understand it at all. They did not understand the thrust of why this was concerning. They weren't concerned by it. In fact, they they think 
I, I, the, what I gather from listening to their questioning is that they, they support what the CDC, the FBI, the State Department, the White House, and other agencies have done. They want more of it done. Uh, in fact, Representative Thomas Massey said on Twitter today that he was in a call with other members of Congress about the, uh, the, the bank situation, the Silicon Valley Bank. And some Democrats said, well, is there, do we have a law? Do we have a way to prevent um, misinfo about banking stuff from, from spreading on social media and causing a bank run, as if like that would be a legitimate use of, of government power to pressure social media companies. Anyway, Democrats have totally bought into the idea that it is necessary and good and right for the government to dictate to social media what its censorship policies should be, and, uh, and I, it is alarming to me. That hearing was chilling. I mean, it was a clown show, but it was a terrifying clown show, as all clown as shows all. are. Clowns are terrifying. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> as all clown shows are, yes. Um, but uh, it was it was absolutely horrific. I mean, we've said here before, I've said here before, We I think we probably agree on this, Matt Taibbi is the, one of the greatest journalists of, you know, the generation, you know, right above us, the Gen Z journalist generation, the Gen X journalist generation. There is nobody who holds a candle to him in terms of language and wit and reporting and honesty honesty. And, you know, it was horrific to see these people treat him with, um, you know, just such outward disdain because they did not like what he had reported, not a single legitimate complaint from any of them. And then to see them trying to get him to reveal his sources, you know, it really was, you know, they clearly decided he was on the other team and treated him as such. And it was just chilling. I mean, I I couldn't look away. I was trying to go back and forth between that hearing and the Norfolk uh, Southern hearing, um, which was difficult because they were scheduled at the same time, but it was very difficult to look away just because it was, you know, when Jim Jordan is the voice of reason, you know that you've really, you know, you've Mm -hmm. really messed up, right? And and I just, you know, I urge people, especially people who see themselves as on the left to watch this hearing and see if like you can identify with these people and the worst part Robbie was to see all of the like yas queen to like Debbie Wasserman Schultz on Twitter from these like you know these these media characters in the liberal mainstream media to see her attacking just baselessly trying to character assassinate somebody uh, I'll just I'll just end with this which is um, uh, Matt, Matt Taibbi on his podcast talking about the episode he said that you know he was like you know I was pretty wild in my 20s I was sure they were gonna like hit me with some like really bad stuff I had done I was nervous I couldn't sleep the night before I was preparing to like address all of these real concerns and instead I got hit with just this like nonsense you know just he called it um black adder congress version you know so mm-hmm. he you know he I think he was dismayed but of course he's taking it in good humor but it was it was really appalling and really worth watching you know if you if you don't have time to watch the whole thing I urge people to watch the clips of it just and you of course you and Brianna did a great job covering this last week censorship should not be a partisan cause should not be something that only one party is fired up about and in other contexts Democrats purport at least to be to care about free speech there's been a lot of criticism of right DeSantis's policies in Florida a lot of Democrats expressing concern that this it would end ends uh, the ends of those the education policies will be will be teachers or schools uh, pulling back the books they have available and so I'm thinking okay so you understand intuitively that government action could influence this like domain right the free speech domain but you're you're just like totally unwilling to apply it in the social media context yeah. even though it's, it's transparently obvious that's what's happening anyway that's uh, my radar for the day we'll have more rising right after this stay with us
Pacha, what's on your radar? So the New York Times reported last week that the Biden administration may reinstate the practice of detaining migrant families that cross the border illegally. The irony is not lost on those who recall that as a candidate, Biden blasted the same policy as inhumane and racist. Quote, it is a moral failing and a national shame when children are locked away in overcrowded detention centers, Biden's campaign website still proclaims. The next president will need to take urgent action to end the Trump administration's draconian policies grounded in fear and racism, candidate Biden went on. Trump has waged an unrelenting assault on our values and our history as a nation of immigrants. It is wrong and it stops when Joe Biden is elected president. Well, it did stop when Joe Biden was elected president, at least for a while. In December of 2021, the administration put an end to the detention of migrant families and released over 100 families into the U.S. Two years and two million illegal immigrants later, President Biden is considering reversing course. Has his administration succumbed to the fear and racism that it once denounced? More likely, they are reading the polls and realizing that the border crisis is going to be a massive vulnerability for Biden come 2024, and not just with Republicans and independents. When asked if there is an, quote, invasion at the southern border in August, a majority of Americans said yes, including 42 percent of Democrats. A new Gallup poll found that American satisfaction with the immigration situation is lower than at any point in the last decade, which, as you may recall, includes all four years Trump was president. That same poll found that one-fifth of Democrats want less immigration, up from a paltry 2% in 2021. And most voters blame Biden for the crisis at the border, Rasmussen found. No wonder Biden is doing a Trump-like about-face. Of course, the White House rejects any comparison with President Trump's border policies. As usual, when their political rivals do something, it's white supremacy. But when they do the very same thing, it's merely, quote, safe orderly and humane, as a DHS spokesperson put it to the Times. It's just the latest example of how blatantly cynical the left's deployment of outrage over alleged racism is. Yet another example of how quickly such smears are used to distract from the fact that many liberal pieties are in truth relatively obvious disguises for upper middle class economic interests. Though they like to speak about immigration in moral terms, the Democratic Party's preference for looser immigration laws is, in part, a rational expression of the self-interest of its metropolitan elite voters and donors, who benefit directly from the endless supply of cheap restaurant cooks, delivery drivers, house cleaners, nannies, and landscapers. As Nancy Pelosi infamously put it in reference to the millions crossing the border illegally, we need them to pick the crops. Meanwhile, the American working class pays for it with the erasure of any meaningful wage floor. It is how safe your industry is from recently arrived workers willing to accept far lower lower wages that determines how pro-immigrant you can afford to be, rather than any deeper claim to openness, generosity, or virtue. Still, it takes a particular form of chutzpah to call your political opponents racists for attempting to protect American workers from wage-suppressing competition with imported cheap labor, only to revert back to those same policies once your accusation helped net you the presidency. It's not just family detention that Biden has adopted from Trump. Biden did away with Trump's Remain in Mexico policy, which requires asylum seekers to await their court date on the other side of the border only to announce plans to reinstate it earlier this month. His administration initially tried its best to do away with Title 42, a pandemic-era policy allowing the quick deportation of those who cross illegally, only to expand it when the courts objected. 
Now a federal judge is ordering border officials to stop using Title 42, which is what sent Biden's team on a fishing expedition into Trump's playbook, looking for ways to staunch the tsunami of migrants Biden's policies encouraged to come. The Biden administration has proven an excellent business partner for the cartels that run the lucrative human smuggling operations conveying migrants across the border. During a period of labor shortages that were leading to rising labor militancy, what big business needed was a jobs program that would undercut further potential worker gains. The cartels complied, supplying laborers to the tune of 2 million souls. And this includes 250,000 children many of whom are employed in dangerous jobs where they toil to earn enough to pay back debts to the cartels. A recent New York Times expose found migrant children doing work for J. Crew, Walmart, Target, Ben & Jerry's, and Fruit of the Loom. They are working in slaughterhouses and as roofers among the other dangerous jobs that the U.S. long ago deemed not suitable for children. 60 caseworkers ex estimated that two-thirds of all unaccompanied migrant children end up working full-time. That's two-thirds of 250,000. What is the word for when you smear someone as a white supremacist to win a contest and then unofficially partner with a brutal enemy to undercut your own workers with child labor? What do you call it when every legacy media outlet and Democratic politician rallied to the chorus denouncing President Trump's family separation policy as uniquely evil, only to have those same outlets and politicians ignore what it was preventing? The deployment of children as de facto slaves, often by family members who had been entrusted to protect them. What redress does a person and his supporters have when they were smeared as racists and xenophobes, only to have the people who smeared them ignore the far worse fate it is imposed on the most vulnerable and then embrace the very tactics they called racist when it proved politically expedient? Of course, there has been some backlash from immigrant advocates and Democratic lawmakers who are upset to see Biden reverse course on family detention. But, you know, it's the kind of polite backlash that they reserve for their own. Most liberal news outlets are silent on the matter. There are no hysterical headlines about racism and white supremacy, even from the few outlets reporting on this, like The Times. Trump's immigration policies may have seemed cruel at the time, but as it turns out, they were actually preventing even more immeasurable cruelty the kind that liberal compassion seems adept at engendering and keeping in the shadows. For Trump, of course, border security was never about race, as the many border-dwelling Hispanic voters who turned out for him in 2020 recognized. It was about countermanding the attempt to erase the distinction between citizen and non-citizen and reasserting the nation's basic obligation to look out for the interests of its own citizens. Maybe now that President Biden is running Trump's playbook on immigration, the charade that casts the material interests of a college-educated upper quintile as a struggle for civil rights will finally come to an end. So, Robbie, I don't know if you saw that um, New York Times uh, expose about the child laborers. Um, absolutely appalling and horrifying and just really, you know, really should force a reckoning over how Trump and immigration were covered. Um, and and I, I mean, I just I, I can't I'm still haunted by it. I can't stop thinking about uh, that report. Um, well, yes, which is what led to this. 
And I, I agree with you that, you know, the media is going very soft on Biden, actually for some continuity in immigration policies, as you point out, that when it was outrageous when Trump did it, why is it not outrageous when Biden does it? But I would say, and you maybe disagree with this, I, I would say that the easiest way to actually combat the, the surge of migrants coming here in unsafe conditions that leave them in debt to the cartel uh, would be to make it easier to immigrate here legally and, you know, sidestep this horrific process. And then, you know, we have, then we have no control over it, people rushing over the border, and just make it so that people can come here, work. Uh, can do legal work here and uh, can grow our economy and contribute to the lowering of prices for food and goods and services and everything. Because we're not all, we, we all benefit from things being cheap. Like right now, we're in the grips of this inflation cr uh, crisis where everything costs way too much, in part because we have artificially restricted the labor supply, labor being just, you know, one resource like anything else. It'd be like we, if we arbitrarily restricted the, the meat supply or the fruit and veggie supply or the supply of hammers and nails or the supply of electricity or anything else. Yeah, I, I really don't agree with that. <laughs> I mean, because inflation comes from uh, too much money pursuing too few goods, right? If you import, you know, two million people and immediately they all find jobs, right? That's going to be even more money pursuing fewer and fewer goods. And of course, we know that the number one good that secures a middle class life, the number one most important thing is a house, right? Every single one of those people needs somewhere to live. We're in a housing crisis. And, you, you know, Robbie, I'm sure you would agree with this. You can't have a sort of open border if you have any form of welfare, right? Because then taxpaying, you know, citizens end up paying, you know, benefits for people who are not citizens. So that was something I think even Milton, even Milton Friedman, your hero, probably, uh, you know, at some level. Level, you know, you would acknowledge and, you know, we're not going to do away with, you know, our, our, you know, the basic benefits, protections for the poor. So, you know, at least even I feel libertarian should be able to acknowledge that until we have some sort of entitlement reform, you know, that the, the situation well, I would, has I would to end. I would get rid of the, the welfare, not the immigration. But right. I mean, the housing, <laughs> housing is a good, like people can't, it's very hard to build houses. You can't get a construction crew together to do it because those people disproportionately used to comprise uh, immigrants. And there's actually a short, like we can't build things in this country because we put but are well, so many I mean, restrictions so on the ability to do that, including on the labor supply. I think this is something we would agree on. I think the real cause of the housing shortage is in a lot of liberal cities, which is where it's most necessary. Um, you know, there are just the, the laws in place. I hear this from developers. There are laws in place. The laws right now in place so favor tenants over landlords that mm -hmm. there is sort of a hesitancy to invest in this industry right now because people are extremely worried about, you know, what that means down the line. So I, I feel like that's even somewhere that we could, you know, um, agree on that the left has sort of, there's nothing they hate more than small business owners, people who have like managed to cobble together mm -hmm. some kind of autonomy independent of their institutions. Um, we should probably leave it at that though. Um, thank you for your, for your feedback. I really appreciate it. We'll have more rising right after this. Thank you, Bacha. President Joe Biden's former chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, has said the lab leak could still be considered as coming from natural origins, actually. <laughs> Take a look at this. A lab leak could be that someone was out in the wild, maybe looking for different types of viruses in bats, got infected, went into a lab, and was being studied in the lab, and then it came out of the lab. But if that's the definition of a lab leak, Jim, then that still is a natural occurrence. The other possibility is someone takes a virus from the environment that doesn't actually spread very well in humans, 
and manipulates it a bit, and accidentally it escapes or accidentally infects someone, and then you get an outbreak. Unbelievable. So he's basically saying that even if it is proven to be a lab leak, well, he's still right that it was animal origin because it, it could have happened that way. So, it, so look, if you're sending researchers in to, you know, caves in, in the jungle to, to gather up samples from these infected bats, so this is not, like, this was not going to naturally happen, right? This is a, actually a concern that lab leak people have raised, that having interactions between these bats in these caves and science, uh, scientists and researchers, this is not natural, because this is not going to occur unless you specifically go and look for these bats and, do, and you know, touch them and are around them and are breathing in what they're breathing in. And then you bring that back to a lab. That's still not, that's not natural animal origin. That's not, that, 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 like, it's, because it's not natural. It, because it, you would not be, you would not have people in the caves being exposed to those bats unless they were doing specifically the research that is in question, that Dr. Fauci has been an advocate of, that the U.S. government has funded, that we worry led to the pandemic. So that, that is not a, that is not a, a natural animal origin akin to, like, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, sea, the seafood market. This is, this is, that would still be based on research being done specifically, deliberately, that we think is very suspect and should not be done. Right. Um, the journalist, Stephen Miller, um, he has this great analysis of, of um, Dr. Fauci, which actually helped me understand even what happened in our interview with him, which is that when you ask him a question about something he got wrong, which is, you know, basically all of our questions to him, you know, he redefines the terms to instead mm -hmm. of actually answering. So as a form of deflection. So now what he's trying to do is create the groundwork for a kind of slippage between lab leak on the one hand and naturally occurring on the other hand, so that he doesn't have to answer those burning questions about, you know, did did funding approved by Dr. Fauci actually contribute to the you know coronavirus pandemic? Right. Um, you know, that check out his work on that. He's written about it for the spectator. Really, really brilliant analysis. Um, meanwhile, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was asked about the bill to declassify the origins of COVID-19, which was unanimously voted on, by the way, uh, by Congress. Let's hear what she had to say. I just want to emphasize there's high interest in knowing if you will sign the bill to declassify the order. Do you think you'll get an answer by the end of the day? I, we're we're going to look at the bill. I can't give a timeline. Yeah, so there's no hurry, obviously, there from the White House to get on that, I think, uh, which is really a shame because there's no reason this needs to be partisan or political at all. Uh, it, it's... It's something that you know impugns um, the class of government scientists, but these were government and sci scientists who were advising the Biden administration and the Trump administration and the Obama administration, and are, they're a class, you know, among themselves. And there were times where Biden was sounding a harsher note on uh, China and Chinese involvement than even than Trump was. You know, Trump was kind of all over the place. He was first he was saying, no, they're doing a great job. We're working closely with them. You know, tr he was trying to do that kind of thing Trump does where he instills confidence that, you know, he has the situation under control and, and right. he's complimenting other world leaders because he doesn't have any beef with them. And then he went in a, well, maybe it was bioengineered, which we don't, no one really seems to think it was, it was deliberately engineered and then released on purpose because why would that be? It, you know, it's killing of Chinese people too. It's not you can't contain it. It's not it's not like like anthrax or something where you can like very precisely target it to. It, it spreads too easily between people. So it, you infect the, the 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 country or the government doing the infecting also gets infected. Um, but uh, but so that's not really what we're looking at. What we're looking at is did this research that we funded that 
Fauci and others said is, is very important and very necessary. Did that lead to, uh, to the pandemic because the research conditions in Wuhan, China were not good or it, something went wrong and then it was covered up by the Chinese government? I, Fauci is this close to saying, like, well, it's still an animal origin because, you know, mankind is the most dangerous animal of all. So if we <laughs> cooked it up in a lab, that's still an animal origin. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, yeah, I mean, just to just to ring my sort of populist bell here, you know, like the smarty pants, like the people with the degrees, you know, the people who claim that they ha should have a claim to rule based on their intelligence or their credentials or, you know, what, what have you, like they really, really messed up here. And worse than that is, you can see like the sliminess of their backtracking and their refusal to admit it. And it's just, it's a real, it's a, it's the death knell of expertise as some form of merit. You know, people like the only thing that matters is what you think about things and what your neighbors think about things. You know, I'm not saying don't go to the doctor, but I'm saying like, what is the point of becoming credentialed if you don't understand that the only thing that matters about the scientific method is the ability to admit you were wrong. That is the entire scientific method. And if anybody is claiming to be a scientist or to have some sort of degree that's meaningful after their name and can't point to a moment in time that they were wrong about something, they don't deserve your respect. And I totally agree with you. And we have to keep in mind that the scientific consensus is ever shifting and, and not everyone always agrees at the same time. You get, we get, the people get a, a just a window into the scientific consensus, a window provided to us by the mainstream media, which is under the influence of political figures and, and as you write about and speak about so, so uh, expertly, Bacha, uh, so, so expertly, you're an expert in this, in, in diagnosing and examining the causes of the elite consensus and the elite interests and the yeah. media class protecting itself. So you get you you just find out you know what the scientific consensus is based on what they're telling you it is even if it's a lot messier and more confused uh, than that I mean in this whole lab leak conversation you know me the meta conversation the conversation about the conversation about the lab leak what we found out is that a, a lot of uh, media voices didn't want to touch it didn't want to talk about it because they didn't want to be perceived as agreeing with Trump about anything or they didn't want their viewers to think Trump was right about anything even though they were kind of misunderstanding what Trump's position was with respect to this that it actually wasn't it, out of step with anything else. It wasn't wildly out there. It was what some in the scientific community thought was perfectly plausible. But they didn't want to touch it for that reason. So you didn't get access to what, you know, you, again, you being the people who reading and listening to what the media has to say, they're not actually getting access to what, to a range of scientific opinions on the truth. They're just getting access to what right. cable news, mainstream newspapers are telling them, unless they're watching Rising and then they're getting, they're getting access to a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> Right. And I will just say that we know, I mean, there were sub-communities um, that were conducting their own sort of unofficial scientific experiments, like noticing what happened. My own community, the Orthodox Jewish community, is just a perfect example of that. It was like a very close-knit, self-contained community that immediately got a sense of how this thing operates and how it spreads and what protects you from it and one doesn't, just from actual exposure, and then were forced to do things that they knew were not the things that worked. I think a lot of churches were probably like this. You know, people who had contact understood very quickly, people with a lot of children 
children understood very quickly. People who live, many people in close-knit communities and immigrant communities understood immediately how this thing works because they saw it with their own eyes. They saw who was dying. You know, they saw, you know, what kinds of exposure were, were, was harmful. And then to have this, you know, in the name of science, these people who hate science, who never admit they're wrong, who push lies that benefit them economically, right, to tell them from on high how they should behave. It was like really, really appalling. And still no signs of any kind of, you know, ending to the gaslighting, you know, no signs mm -hmm. that of, that anybody on the left recognizes that if you compare a state like Florida to a state like New York, you have a perfectly designed scientific experiment that if people weren't so stuck in, you know, on their side, they would be able to see. Mm, indeed. All right, we'll have more rising in just a minute. Please stay with us. It's so inspiring to me, and I hope it is inspiring to every American, uh, <laughs> particularly those in positions to make decisions, because we have to continue, and I would even argue, increase the military support that we give to the Ukrainians sooner. That was former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton on Morning Joe this past Friday after being asked about her sentiments on the Russia-Ukraine war. There is still much discourse over how much support, if any, the United States should still be given giving to the war-torn nation, but Max Abrams, an international relations professor at Northeastern University, opines in a new piece in The Atlantic that the U.S. is making a big mistake in Ukraine and that our support may actually be harming Ukrainians themselves. Here to discuss his brave piece on the U.S. strategy in Ukraine and its missteps is Max Abrams himself. Welcome, Max. Thank you so much for joining us and for this great piece. My pleasure. And thanks so much for having me. It's um unusual to get airtime to raise any, you know, uh, hesitations about U.S. policy. In, in my lifetime, I believe this is the most propagandized war um, that we've seen. And, and, and that includes the Iraq war, that includes Libya, that includes Syria. Um, all, I would say almost all U.S. wars have featured a large dose of propaganda but in the, U, in the Ukraine case, it's, it's actually noteworthy because the stakes are higher. We're dealing with a nuclear-armed country. In fact, Russia has more nukes than the United States does. Um, and, the, and the propaganda is widespread. So with the Iraq war, it, it was very top-down. You know, it was a handful of guys, essentially, in the Bush administration talking about the axis of evil, you know, linking Saddam with WMDs and Al-Qaeda affiliates and, and other people sort of repeated it down the line. Um, but with the Ukraine war, it, it's much more widespread. There are more propagandists, if you will. And it's not just from the United States, it's also um, coming from Europe. And so um, the goal of my piece was to um, sort of reconcile the, those talking points um, with the academic literature in international relations, which I believe uh, urges more caution. Uh, I would like to, to, um, to make an acknowledgement, and that is that the field of international relations is quite rich, and there are many different theories and empirical studies to draw upon. And I don't mean to suggest that all of them are in the same direction, 
pointing to caution. Um, but I do believe that the most relevant works um, suggest that the United States might want to reconsider some of its policies towards Ukraine. Yeah, I wanted to read a, a, a paragraph from your p brilliant piece. Everyone should read it. Um, you write that states are significantly more likely to escalate against civilians as they become more desperate. Contrary to conventional wisdom, scholarship suggests Ukrainian citizens may paradoxically benefit from us supporting them less. Now, I wanted to ask you, first of all, to expound on that, but also... What is your explanation for why this is the most propagandized war in American history and why the left, which is traditionally used to be the anti-war party, has gone, you know, whole hog in on this on this war? Right. I think that Americans uh, often think of, you know, the Democrats and the left as the same. They think of the Democratic Party as more progressive, more likely to put the, um, the halt on, on war. And yet we're actually not seeing that. Um, polls show that there is generally, you know, strong bipartisan support for this war. But if anything, it's actually stronger on the Democratic side. And we saw this uh, several months ago when there was a letter by some of the, you know, the, the supposed progressives um, among the Democrats in Congress um, asking for um, at least contemplating negotiations, and it was shot down by the Democratic Party. Um, it's a complex answer as to why the Democratic Party has abandoned, um, you know, progressive interests when it comes to U.S. foreign policy towards Russia. But I do believe that it relates to the 2016 election, where Russia was essentially blamed for you know, the presidency of Donald Trump, who's reviled. And ever since then, Democrats have been baying for blood. And one way that Democrats have tried to distinguish themselves from, from the MAGA types is being tough on Russia. And so with the election of Biden, this created an opportunity for Democrats to, to not only stick it to Russia, but also to try to differentiate themselves um, from Trump and his supporters. You know, it's interesting, too, because although in our in our lifetimes in, in recent years, over the course of the Bush administration, the aughts, the Republican Party was strongly identified with neoconservatism, with foreign policy interventionism. You know, on a much larger historical scale, a lot of, and of course, the parties have reversed what they think about a lot of things. They've switched in a lot of ways. But Vietnam was a, was a war that was largely conducted by Democratic administrations. Um, Korea was started by a Democratic president, ended by a Republican president. To the extent that there was any opposition to World War One and World War Two, it was actually more concentrated in the Republican Party than the Democratic Party, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so there, there actually has been a rich history of, of like fringe Republican opposition to wars that I think has now that we, we've returned to in, to some degree. I agree with that. That's a, a very astute observation. Um, but I do think that in the American mind, the Democratic Party is more um, mm -hmm. associated, you know, ever since, you know, the Vietnam War and, and the hippies and, and the protests. Um, and, uh, you know, to an extent, we are seeing a reversal where, where the strongest sort of opposition to the war um, seems to be concentrated in the Republican Party. Um, well, but but, but, but again, it, a lot of it does return to um, the American mm -hmm. polity 2016 and beyond, where 
um, an important segment of the Republican Party, as you know, the so-called never Trumpers, um, they tended to move to the Democratic Party. Now, they might not say that they're Democrats, but they functionally are if you see what they write about in places like the Atlantic or, or Washington Post. Um, those, those people often, you know, in general, were, have been quite hawkish, right? Um, they were, many of them were neocons and they were absorbed within the Democratic Party and moved it in a more hawkish direction. And it, it'll be interesting to see whether the hawkishness remains um, only for Russia or whether it extends more broadly, um, making the Democratic Party overall more hawkish, even on non-Russia related issues. We'll see about that. Well, President well, Biden has said that. over and over again that the U.S. will stand with Ukraine for, quote, as long as it takes. But reporting in Politico signals that ironclad unity between Washington and Kyiv appear to be starting to crack. Uh, what do you think ab about this? I I do you see any signs that the administration is growing uh, frustrated with this kind of open-ended commitment? You know, in public, they say Biden has reaffirmed over and over again, we are in this as long as it takes. Uh, do you think that's true behind the scenes as well? I think that this article is interesting. It's always interesting to read Politico. Um, the reason why is because Politico um, has a very tight read on what's going on within the establishment. In some cases, they just reflexively um, parrot it. Um, and so when they say this is what's going on in the establishment, you know that it, that's actually is going on, or at the very least, <laughs> this is what the establishment wants re uh, released uh, to the general public. Um, I think that the importance of that article is not so much in revealing that, there, um, that, that the Biden administration is going to change its policy towards Ukraine, but I think that it highlights the disconnect between what you know people within the Biden administration and, and, and people like all of us actually know versus the public face of the administration in terms of its position towards Ukraine. Um, there's a lot of sort of um, fantasy thinking about the Ukraine war. You know, the idea is that we can just ramp up the amount of, uh, you know, weapons to Ukraine and, 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 and it'll achieve full victory. You know, that Putin is going to say that, you know, he made a mistake. He's going to withdraw his forces, including since 2014, you know, that he's going to go home, that that we're not going to see him retaliate in any ways, you know, that he's not going to retaliate against Ukrainians. He's not going to um, sponsor more cyber attacks or or more terrorism um, and that this will simply be a, a one sided victory. Um, but the likelihood of that happening, I think, is about zero. It's, it's <laughs> extraordinarily low. The truth is, is and, and we're seeing this already now, is that this is a war of attrition. Um, it, is, it is highly, it is extremely bloody on both sides. Um, no side is going to attain 100% victory. And this is going to become even more obvious when, you know, if the battle gets to Crimea. Um, where Russia is even more dug in and which um, means even more to Putin and to, and to Russian history. Uh, Putin says that Crimea is a red line. 
Um, and I do not see the Russians leaving there um, lightly at all. Um, and, and, and surely uh, people within the Biden administration understand this. And so when they say, oh, you know, our goal is complete victory, it's simply unrealistic. It's not going to shake down that way. And as a professor, um, independent of any sort of policy prescription, I'm interested in the truth um, and, and sharing it, um, even if it leads to some uh, messy and worrisome answers. Mm, well, Max, we, we so appreciate having your expertise on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. My Thank you so much. We'll have more rising right after this. Actress and activist Jane Fonda appeared on The View this past Friday talking about abortion rights. When asked what else she would do to take a stand aside from marching and protesting, Fonda replied with murder. Let's take a look. We're not going back. I don't care what the laws are. We're not going back. Yeah. Well, I think the women will rise up. That's the activist. That's Jane speaking, yeah. and, 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 and she probably will get a Nobel Prize. But it's very, the truth. Very, very soon. It, it is the truth. But we're I, not going to do it. Besides, I, besides marching and, and protesting, what else do you suggest? Well, well it doesn't happen murder. overnight. It's not a miraculous. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> murder. <laughs> She's kidding. Wait a second. She's just now, kidding. Don't say that. That's oh, not... you don't know. They'll pick up on that and yeah, just run with it. Yeah, that's the worst. She's joking. just kidding. It's... Well, let me talk to you about it. <laughs> Well, here we are picking up on it, I guess. Uh, what did you make of these remarks, Bacha? Like, it's it's not, first of all, it's not funny. And it's not funny because she actually didn't mean it as a joke, you know? Like, and, um, the, like, these people don't actually believe in democracy, right? It's, it's, again, you know, when you do it, it's white supremacy. When they do it, it's defending democracy. When you do it, it's fascism. When they do it, it's, you know, protecting democratic ideals, right? In order to protect the you know democratic ideal that she has allegedly that women should be able to abort into the ninth month you know murder is on the mm -hmm. table like, it's just it's crazy and I, she really believes that you know and and she's just such a perfect example of this you know high on its own virtue millionaire you know hollywood set like she's so representative of you know the oscars and like that whole world and how um how damaging their you know morality is and their sense of their own virtue and how bound up it is in their economic privilege their immense economic privilege and their absolute hatred for anybody who disagrees with them. I mean, my God, a healthy democracy should be able to sustain a debate about when life exists. Like, it's just like one of the most basic things. People disagree about it. If you're religious, you're gonna have a different view than somebody who's not religious. In my own synagogue, we all disagree about, you know, this question of abortion. There's just a lot of healthy debate around this question as there should be. What they're essentially saying is, is that their democracy has no room in it for religious people who are alive. And I mean, that's just appalling, but it is really what they think. Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> that was suggested for Jane Fonda in that segment. Um, I, I, I can't quite uh, grasp why, although I didn't, I didn't quite care for uh, President Obama's Nobel Peace Prize for becoming elected back when, when that happened. I was kind of on board with that. I have to say, like, it was symbolic. It really mattered. I'm really glad. All the like, drone warfare he was about to launch. <laughs> 
I mean, no, of where this country had come to. I mean, that was, I mean, that was a historic moment. And I was, I mean, yeah, I look, I'm, I have vestiges mm. of wokeness in me that I, I that see. I'm attached to actually. <laughs> I, we did a flashback to a time where you were still a little, a uh, little bit more on the program. Um, I, so turning back to this for a moment uh, and, and also specifically the, the, you know, murder them. Um, I mean, there are a lot of pro-life people who earnestly and sincerely believe that life begins at conception and that, in, that abortion is akin to murder and the people performing abortions are, in fact, murderers. And I think many Democrats, liberals, people who are pro-choice um, think that rhetoric is inappropriate and don't like it and think it's overheated. You know, it will point to the actual, you know, rise in actual violence, actual, you know, abortion clinics being sent death threats and in some cases people show up and cause violence it doesn't happen extraordinarily often but it has happened certainly um, and you know when we talk the, the the media and democrats talk so much about needing to bring down the rhetoric in this country you know the very angry rhetoric coming from some uh, corners of the of the far right hate crimes etc all that and it's like okay but then when it's your turn in the chair you you when you're asked casually what what should be done about the issue you care about you say well murder people who disagree with me um, I, I I think people won't take you very seriously then when you when it, you're in your next breath will start complaining about political rhetoric being over the top and you know all, all these MAGA people and they're just you know ticking time bombs because they're so angry all the time can't they calm down but also, did you notice Joy Behar saying she's joking, not because she was so offended by what she said, but because they're going to seize on it, right? Mm -hmm. Like they, like the people who don't believe in murder, right, are going to seize on it, right? I mean, that was so telling as well, right? Like the thing that bothered her was not that Jane Fonda just suggested murdering conservatives, but that like, oh, God forbid somebody see that who actually has a problem with it and talk about it. It's the age-old uh, Republicans pounce framing of every issue, exactly. right? There's gonna, that would be how exactly. uh, the mainstream will cover this. Oh, Republicans are very upset about what she said, not actually criticizing what she said, but criticizing that you would bother to get upset, be upset by it. It's very telling. Yeah, it's so, so, so gross. And the truth is, is that, that like it shows like the view that really distort the truth, which is that the vast majority of Americans are in agreement about abortion. They want it to be legal in the first trimester. They want it to be legal at all times, only if it threatens the life of the mother. They want it to be legal if there was, you know, rape and inc I mean, there's like 60 percent mm -hmm. of Americans want it to be legal in the first trimester. Like game over. Like we're, we're this is mm -hmm. not actually a divisive issue unless you're making a ton of money on you know, trying to convince Americans that this is a divisive issue, which a lot of people are. It's a divisive issue, right, for the political activists on both sides of the issue. Exactly. But as you note, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of general sentiment among Americans that it should be an option in many, many cases, not all cases, and people on either side are not comfortable with what most Americans actually feel intuitively about it. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Please stay tuned. Well, a new intelligence report reviewed by U.S. officials suggests a pro-Ukrainian group might have carried out the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines last year, the New York Times reports. Now, U.S. officials said they had no evidence that President Volodymyr Zelensky or his top lieutenants were involved in the sabotage. 
German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius warned against premature accusations or responsibility for the attacks. He said it may ju just as well have been a false flag operation staged to blame Ukraine, an option brought up in the media reports, as well as including in a report by Kelly Villajos in Responsible Statecraft. Executive Director of Responsible Statecraft Kelly Villajos joins us now to weigh in. Thank you so much for joining us, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So um, do you find the false flag uh, commentary to be in any way persuasive? I think it's very interesting. And I have to say, though I haven't seen it in mainstream reports, I'm not surprised. A lot of people are talking about the possibility of a CIA cover story. And it could be it could split a number of ways. Um, one of the theories uh, that has been touted uh, by some of my sources and, and people around town, former CIA agents, in, in fact, talk about how Cy Hirsch's theory and his reporting could be absolutely correct and that the CIA or we could look, look at other state actors have put out a story, a leaked story, in which a pro-Ukrainian rogue group of actors was responsible uh, even down to the boat that was found and the investigation and the team that was reportedly behind it um, as a way to deflect from the actual truth. Uh, we know from our reporting from months ago that uh, the Swedish investigators have said that only a state actor could be behind this complicated operation. So there's a lot of disbelief today uh, out there, whether it be on Twitter, and even coming from people who don't necessarily believe Cy Hirsch's version of events, who say it is highly unlikely that a rogue group of pro-Ukrainians could have been responsible for such a complicated operation. Right. And and I have to point out, you know, this is now so far afield of the knee-jerk reaction that many in, I think, the mainstream media and maybe the gut reaction of, uh, of, of spokespersons for government said, oh, well, it, Russia did this. Russia is the cause of this war. The, just, the explanation for why Russia would blow this up never made a lot of sense to begin with. But now we have largely moved on. I don't hear a lot of that kind of chatter, you know, coming anymore. So now it's, you know, that New York Times piece said, well, maybe it was, it could have been a pro, not Russia, but a pro-Russian group, or it could have been a, not Ukraine, but a pro-Ukrainian group. And then, of course, we, we have Cy Hirsch's report saying it, it was the U.S. Um, I, I feel like we're, we're, you know, we're moving closer to, to, to the truth or uh, closer to an understanding that this is likely, was likely someone aligned with the Ukrainian or the Western vision, which is what makes most sense, no? Right. And, and Jeremy Scahill at The Intercept had a great piece out, I think it was on Monday, today, uh, about just that, that we're moving closer to the truth. And he had even suggested uh, that the pro-Ukrainian uh, rogue operation theory might have been a, a cover for what really happened and that the reporting by Cy Hirsch is not so far from the events that are posited by this New York Times story. I find it very interesting. There were a few details in the New York Times story uh, that kind of hint that Cy Hirsch was onto something. One of those was a report, uh, a passage within that report that said that European officials had found 
that there were 45 or at least 45 quote unquote ghost ships on the water in the Baltic that day or that week rather of the explosion. And they're called ghost ships because they have likely turned off their transponders so they couldn't be picked up at the time. Now, one of the biggest criticisms against Cy Hirsch's piece was that he said that a minesweeper was involved in the operation, the operation that was conducted by expert US Navy divers. And those who had been calling uh, uh, open source intelligence had says, well, there's, there were no such minesweepers recorded on the Baltic that day. Well, here we have the New York Times admitting, based on European uh, officials, that there were ghost ships, that there were plenty of ships, at least 45, on the water that day that had turned off their transponders. I find that there are little elements of the story. Um, the New York Times story and the German press had reported that this rogue, this supposed rogue boat, which is a, a yacht that had been um, licensed uh, or you know permitted in in Poland, had been uh, operating off the coast of, of Rostock, but then had completed its operation off a, a, a Danish island. Well, it was not so far from uh, the island of Bornholm, which is the island that Cy Hirsch said that the operation had been conducted by the, the Navy divers. I feel like there are similar elements. Uh, even Jack Murphy, and, and I hope we have time to talk about this, Jack Murphy, who is a former special operations uh, soldier, he had, he is a, a journalist, he had done eight months of reporting on a very important story about CIA-backed saboteurs who are operating in Russia um, against Russian assets. He finally, after not being able to publish this in mainstream newspapers, published this on his own substack on December 24th. Uh, so he has a reporting with, with great sources saying that the CIA has backed saboteurs uh, in Russia. Even he is out there. Now, he's out there saying he doesn't know if he wants to believe Cy Hirsch or even this New York Times story, but he's incredulous that, that we would think that a rogue group of operators could pull something like this off. And even he said in his, in his Twitter, uh, just recently said the narrative about rogue Ukrainians is a controlled leak from the seventh floor, meaning the CIA. <laughs> and so there are plenty of people on both sides of the story who are really questioning now what what the what the New York Times story piece is all about, and whether or not the the United States is deflecting um, from another state actor, whether it be themselves or someone else, in in this regard. Right. With reports like this, you know, you never know whether it's like the, they wanted the journalist to report it or they didn't want them to. And, you know, you could spend a lot of time sort of trying to, you know, navigate the tone to figure that out. I, I, I obviously is completely, you know, consistent with the history of the United States that this would have been us. The one argument I've always found extremely compelling for why I don't think President Biden would have greenlit this was the question of the price of gas, which was such a huge domestic issue, especially in the lead up to the midterms, I cannot imagine him greenlighting something that would have made gas more expensive for Americans from a domestic 
politics point of view. Now, I said this to a friend of mine who's, you know, quite high up in intelligence, and he said, yeah, the CIA doesn't need, you know, the president's green light to to, to get involved in something like this. Which so, is a huge know, problem, I, to be clear. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes, yes. So I, I'm wondering what you make of that, you know, if, if you think it's possible that this was sort of CIA rogue, that this was something that the president himself would not, if you agree with me, first of all, that it seems unlikely that the president would have okayed something that would have been likely to, to make gas prices more, much more expensive. Um, and also, if you think that that has any bearing on, on the intelligence and what it means. Well, I mean, most of the most of the, the gas that had been delivered through this pipeline would go to Western sources, not the United States. And at the time, and, 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 and most people or people who have been more inclined to believe the Cy, her story, have noticed that there have noted that there was a new pipeline, Western pipeline opening up had just been announced like a day or a week before the Nord Stream uh, pipeline explosions. And so Ukraine was actually uh, who had, had been fighting this this Nord Stream 2 pipeline. They had lobbyists like swarming all over Washington ahead of the evasion of the war. And one of my colleagues, uh, Ben Freeman, had reported this. He did like a, a side to side comparison of the number of lobbyists that had been employed by Russia and Ukraine ahead of the invasion and found that, you know, uh, Ukrainian, what the Ukrainians point of contact, like the, the firms that they had hired in Washington to do their bidding and in, in, on Capitol Hill, they had 13,000 points of contact in 2021 alone. And most of those were to shut down the Nord Stream 2 pipeline because wow. they wanted their, their, yeah. So they benefited from this. Mm -hmm. And you see that Ted Cruz, both Ted Cruz and Bob Menendez, a bipartisan issue here thoroughly, had, had been um, really pushing for this Nord Stream 2 to be shut down. It was. I mean, the, the pipeline itself wasn't going anywhere once the invasion started, but uh, but the pipe, the first one, Nord Stream One, had had been delivering plenty of gas to Western Europe. Um, it was only shut down for maintenance reasons after the invasion, and then uh, Russia said, "We're not turning it back on because we because of the sanctions, we don't have the parts, and we we can't we can't turn it on." So. It was likely that it, that only Nord Stream 2 would have went back online anyway. But absolutely, I think both the United States and Western uh, energy interests actually benefited from this pipeline shutting down. Mm. Mm. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on Rising today to talk about this. We really appreciate it. I, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. And we'll have more Rising for you right after this. The 95th Academy Awards took place yesterday. Notable award winners were Everything, Everywhere, All at Once for Best Picture, Brendan Fraser winning Best Actor for his performance in The Whale, and Michelle Yeoh winning Best Actress for her starring role in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. During her acceptance speech, Yeoh was cordial and respectful, but she didn't miss an opportunity to take a swipe at CNN anchor Don Lemon. Let's watch. Thank you. Thank you. For all the little boys and girls who look like me watching tonight, <laughs> this is a beacon of hope and possibilities. This is proof that dreams dream big and dreams do come true. And ladies, don't let anybody tell you you are ever past your prime. 
never give up. Meanwhile, on CNN this morning, Don Lemon praised Asians and Asian American communities for having a big <laughs> night full of wins at the Oscars, but glossed over that remark uh, in the acceptance speech. Uh, very powerful uh, moment. I actually heard this morning uh, my wife was listening to a podcast that was doing a recap of the Oscars. We didn't watch any of it last night, but I, I heard her go, yes, <laughs> in the other room while I was getting ready. What? And I was like, what, what are you talking about? She, she had just heard that remark. So she was pre pretty excited to hear that uh, that uh, clap back. Yeah, I mean, look, who who doesn't enjoy some like intra elite infighting, you know, uh, marshalling all of the right categories of, you know, identity politics in order to like win your awards and so forth. Like, it's very hard not to feel on the one hand, like, yes, it's very nice to see people who like have gone for a long time without recognition getting the awards they, you know, whatever. I haven't seen most of these movies, but, um, you know, I did feel a little bit like, you know, Angela Bassett was, was overlooked and I felt a little bit upset about that. Um, you know, it, but at the same time, like, you know, d dreams do come true because two people got, you know, awards at this, like in this tiny industry that like, you know, mm -hmm. how many, you know, movie stars are there already in this country, you know, a, a hundred, a thousand, you know, like, dr you know, dr her dream came true, you know, and the idea that this represents anything bigger than that, you have to be very bought into this idea idea, you know, of identity politics to think that like, I mean, I, I do think representation is important. You know, I do think that like, you know, it, it shapes how you think about things. Like definitely, I wish there were more, you know, you know, strong female heroines or what have you when I was growing up. But I, at the same time, I don't think that that is like one of the great civil rights fights of our of our time. You know, it's a very limited, you know, yes, we want our elites to be more diverse, you know, but at the same time, that always begs the question, what about everybody else? And like, I don't know that this suggests like some sort of sea change for, for example, Asians who are being discriminated against at Harvard. Well, of course not. I agree with you. I was still excited about it. I uh, Now, I didn't watch all of, I'm embarrassed to admit this because I know people really raved about this film, including a lot of my own friends. Um, I didn't make it all the way through, and I just wasn't engaged by it. I might give it another shot, but I, I do really like Michelle Yeoh. I've liked her in so many things. Um, all the kind of, uh, you know, Wujia-style uh, Asian fighting films, I, I love that stuff. So I, I, was, I was glad to see someone appreciate Appreciated, uh, see her appreciated for a, a kind of um, film style that's uh, that's getting, I think, more uh, more attention from audiences. That it's actually a little. Um you know, you're, you're laying into the kind of elite angle. I, I think there was probably a lot of appreciation for these films from ordinary people because they're like cool, like the cool fighting style, and maybe mm -hmm. like elite sensibilities had not uh, w would have disdained them until uh, until now. So I, I like that aspect of it. I would say. Then the other uh, big winner of the night was All Quiet on the Western Front, which I also didn't see. I'm not sure I saw a single one of the movies in the best <laughs> act in the best uh, picture category. I didn't see the Elvis movie. I didn't see. I, I saw Black Panther, that, the Black Panther 2, that was nominated for something. I didn't see The Whale. Um, I, 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 I do see movies. I just don't see, I guess I don't see the ones the Oscars <laughs> like. I see all the Marvel movies. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just can't help but feel that this is, um, you know, this kind of an event is becoming more and more irrelevant in part because of the populist revival. People just don't want to sit around and watch very wealthy people pretend that they have a mm -hmm. sense of humor about things or that you know, they're laid back or that they actually, you know, 
are happy when somebody else wins an award that they think they deserve. Um, so I, I just think that the you know the the purchase of an event like this of of something like this you know a lot of Americans used to used to um, tune in and now they really don't anymore. And you know Bill Maher actually made a great point this weekend. Um, I don't know if you watched his show, but he had a whole segment about how uh, I think it was 1970. Three when Marlon Brando won for The Godfather and did not show up to accept his award, he sent a Native American woman to accept it for him, um, you know, because that was a cause that he felt very strongly about. And she was sort of booed and jeered and the, the audience was like not having it because they had not yet become, you know, sort of in, invested in, they had not become bobos yet, right? Like, like the, the mm-hmm. elites had not yet become like completely identified with the Democratic Party and liberal and leftist. Um, you know, issues, although I would argue, of course, that like caring about Native Americans is not a partisan issue, but they sort of booed her. And, you know, he, Bill Maher was using this as an example of how much progress we've made as a society, which of course we have made a ton of progress as a society. But as I'm always arguing, you know, the elites have gone way too far. Like, you know, after winning all of these really important civil rights battles about, you know, the importance for equality, about, you know, the importance of, you know, civil rights, they sort of took things way too far based on this college educated idea ideology that rejects like the mainstream middle class virtues that that the left had worked so hard to instill in the mainstream in America. And now they're sort of they've gone woke. And it's um, I think that's really what you see now and how tied that woke far left ideology is with economic privilege like that to me is really what the Oscars is all about. So interestingly enough, so the the Native American actress activist who spoke on behalf of Marlon Brando, her name was Sashin Littlefeather. So she passed away this year. She was not in you know the Oscars in memoriam uh, kind of recap mm. where it, gives, it lists the names, shows images of of, of uh, Hollywood people who passed away in the last year. She was left off that list. Every year, people complain about who gets left off. This year, it seemed like there were a particularly galling number of uh, omissions. Uh, so no, no her. Um, Gilbert Gottfried did not make it. I, I thought he should have made it. Tom Sizemore, uh, who passed away this year. Um, Anne Hesch, who passed away, didn't make it. Um, oh, and, and also the actress in this Triangle of Sadness movie, which was one of the movies nominated for, I, I think, for Best Picture. Um, she, she, she was only 32. She passed away this year of an of a, of a illness she contracted. Um, and she was not in the montage either. So there were a, a, a Paul Servino. Um, anyway, I thought that was a, I don't know, whose job it is to put that thing together each year. They miss, miss some important people, so. Yeah. Yeah. Difficult um, that, job. What, what's that? <laughs> Heck of Probably a job. a difficult job, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, well, our producers are telling me I have to give uh, everything, everywhere, all at once another shot, so maybe I will do that uh, this weekend. I'm actually going to, I've got a long plane flight. Maybe I'll download it for the plane flight. Uh, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, Brianna Joy Gray will be back at the desk. Bacha, it's been wonderful to see you. Thank you, Robbie. I'll be watching all week. And be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere that you can consume podcasts. And I will see you back here tomorrow. Take care.